Welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. My name is Marley. Today's guest is Michael Gelbart. Michael is a successful comedian whose career highlights include comedy specials on both Canada's CTV and the U.S.'s CBC. He's also written and performed on Teen Nick, Disney, and the Cartoon Network. Michael recently wrote a book called The Other Oprahs about four women who share the same name. Here's my discussion with Michael Gelbart. So, you know, I, I am really looking forward to talking with you today and especially about, uh, you know, your comedy and your writing and definitely the book about uh, the women with the name Oprah. But I thought, if you don't mind, we could start with a little bit about you. Sure. Great. What would you like to know? What did your parents name you when you were born? What did they name me? Yes. I like they names. Me- That's my thing. Oh, yeah. I, I checked out your website. Um, they named it was actually if I was a girl. Well, if I'm a boy, clearly. But so they went with Michael. Thanks that for was clarifying that. From the, from the get go, Michael. And if I was a girl, I was going to be named Marley. <laughs> really? They must have liked Bob <laughs> no, Marley. No, I made that up just now. I figured you did. Yeah. Did they tell you why they picked the name Michael? Yeah, um, I believe... Yeah, um, they were naming me after my father's father who had recently died. And so, uh, but they didn't want to call me Max because I guess my mother didn't like the name Max. So they knew they had to go with an M name. Mm. Uh, So they went with Michael. Interesting. Did you like the name when you were a kid? Uh, It was kind of boring for me as a kid. Like it was... um, it was too dull. Like in elementary school, when they took attendance, they had a, they had to call me Michael G because there's always you know a kid named Michael B who ruins it for me, you know. But and I always wanted a less common name, so I'd be the only one in the class with that name because I was always Michael G during attendance all the way till you know when, until you get to an age where they stop taking attendance. Right. But you know, yeah. it's interesting because I read that in the United States, at least that. Michael is the first or the second most popular name given to male babies for each year since 1954. Yeah, I I, I knew it was the most popular name in the 70s, uh, but I I didn't know the the statistics like you do. But yeah, I knew it was like a super popular name. And I, I would, do you know the most popular female name? Do you have any idea what that might be? The problem with that is then a girl is a female is dated by her name, so. Martian. Well, yeah, exactly. What happens is when naming their daughters, a lot of people go with whatever the popular nighttime soap opera characters. <laughs> yes. So Marsha, yeah. you know, back in the 60s, you know, it's a very popular name. So now when you see somebody named Marsha, you know, she's from the 60s. Yes. And here's one. I don't know that this is a popular name from a um, from a TV show or anything, but I have not met one person named um, Rhonda that was born before like 1978. It's as if, no, everyone named Rhonda was born before 1978. It's as if the name, when you meet a Rhonda, you know you're meeting someone who's 30 or older, but you're definitely not meeting a 25 Rhonda. That name completely died like in, I don't know what year, 70, it could have been 80, could have been 80. But it died. No one named anyone Rhonda after 1980. It'll come back. Just give it time. That's the thing. Like nowadays, you see people naming their kids Emily. It's just a matter of time. When I was a kid and Splash came out, when I was 
you know, Splash came out before I was even old enough to start thinking about having a, a family of any kind. I was like, I was like 11 or so. But when Splash came out and I heard the name Madison for the first time, uh, that was the name of the mermaid in the movie. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to name my daughter Madison one day. Right. <laughs> you started then, the trend uh, when you didn't even know it. <laughs> And, and and I'm sure women all over America were thinking that, that we're of the correct age to have kids. It was 1984. So now there are Madisons everywhere that are like 26 years old. Like it's a common name from 1984. So you think it might be related to seeing that movie? Splash, definitely. It was the first time I'd heard the name Madison as a human name. Not not a store or like a, not a street name in New or York. Or president. Yes. <laughs> That's what I, I read is that there's this trend of naming people after dead presidents, you know, Madison, Monroe. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to my friend, uh, I was talking to my friend uh, Lincoln about that uh, earlier today. <laughs> Seriously, you have a friend named Lincoln? No, no. no. <laughs> I made yeah. that up just now. Yeah. But... Uh, my friend Buchanan and my friend Lincoln <laughs> and I were hanging out. And uh, yeah, see, those ones good. didn't really become first names. So, what about as an adult? Do you do you like your name now? It's fine, you know. It's, it's um still not super interesting. Like it's the kind of name. If your name is Michael, a lot of people will call you you by your last name. Like, hey, Galbert, how you doing, man? Because it's not common that your male friends are going. Michael, how you doing, Michael? Or even Mike seems kind of like not that interesting. So you, people will, whatever your more interesting name is, that will call you, I think. I think you're right. No one goes, hey, what's up, McMillan? Because your name's Marley. So yeah. they're not going to, McMillan, how you doing? Because it's so much fun to say Marley already. That's right. There's no reason to go there. <laughs> yeah. So I take it you don't go by Mike. Uh, I have some friends who call me Michael, Mike, Sweet Mikey G, and the, and the one I like least uh, is um, uh, Gelby, which is half my last name, you know? So someone will go, hey, Gelby, how you doing, Gelby? And I always, that was okay until I was about 25. And now, you know, as you get older, you're like, you don't want to be called some college-ish or high school kind of nickname. Yeah, that's right. But I don't care that much. I mean... Did you ever think about a stage name? Oh no, no, no! That no, no, absolutely not. You know, like that Canadian, I would be in that uh, uh, Sinbad. He is. I'm sure that's a, a stage name, isn't it? Uh no. Well, yeah, his name is actually Sid, Sinbad Johnson. Is it really interesting? And he just goes. He dropped the Johnson. And he's just Sinbad. When you've got a name, well, just like your point, when you've got a name like Sinbad Johnson, just leave it, just leave it alone. I'm making that up. These guys. Oh, you're making that up. Sinbad Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm going to Google that and find out what. Would you please? His real name. I bet it is Sinbad. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna go on Wikipedia and see what Sinbad's real name is. But it's definitely not Sinbad Johnson, and I'm sure his name's not Sinbad. You are so good because I, I was going right along with that. Most African-American um, uh, comedians, like, uh, get, get uh, black guys uh, say, get, get away with some interesting names, whereas a white guy wouldn't. Like, 
Cedric the Entertainer is definitely going to be a black guy. Sinbad's going to be a black guy. David Adkins. Um, His name was David Adkins. Was. Isn't that interesting? Sinbad's name was David Adkins? Sinbad's name. His real name is David Adkins. Now, whether or not he legally changed it, I don't know. Yeah. No, some black comedians and and musicians get away with some, you know, they can get away with, they can pull it off where they, yeah. my name's no longer Bob Johnson. It's MC Skitscat Schooly Doo. Do you or, know something funny? I know somebody named Bob Johnson. <laughs> I do. It's my daughter's softball coach. <laughs> I love the name Bob Johnson. And if, uh, and I use it in my standup, like whenever I need just a generic name, yeah. I always use Bob Johnson in my ad. I'll send you a picture. That way you know what he looks like. <laughs> no, I don't want to put any, I don't want to put a face to Bob Johnson. He's got to be just a nondescript everyman. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I read that you've done comedy specials on, on CTV and CBC and Late Show with Craig Ferguson and all that. How, what made you decide to become a comedian? I was 17 years old and I was in the 12th grade. And uh, they had, we had, I always wanted to do stand up, you know, even from when I was a kid, uh, long before Seinfeld was ever famous, when he used to just do, I guess he'd do Johnny Carson or he'd do daytime TV. And I would see him on uh, like TV shows uh, since I was about eight years old. And I would think, I want to do that. And I also thought, I also knew he would be famous. I also, I predicted the fame of Jerry Seinfeld at like seven years of age. And but it was something I was really interested in doing uh, as a career. You know, as a kid, you have these dreams of doing these things. And then you find out later that they're impossible or ridiculous or uh, people just out of fear, they move on. Or maybe your parents kind of like beat it out of you, you know, like instill so much fear in you that you can't do that thing anymore. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I knew at an early age I wanted to do it. And in, uh, when uh, The Jerk came out, which was Steve Martin's first big movie, mm -hmm. my parents took me to that. And I was really young, like too young to the content of the movie was completely lost on me. But I thought there's a guy acting crazy uh, and uh, being hilarious, a grown man. And I'd love to do that. So um, so those were my first couple of influences where I, where I realized what I wanted to do. But then we, when I got to be about 17 and I was in the 12th grade, we had an English media project in school and the teacher was like, everyone has to select an aspect of show business of the media and do an oral presentation in front of the whole class. So I said, what a great opportunity to do my first ever five minutes of stand-up and then talk about uh, the history of stand-up comedy after I finished. So I did that in front of a class of about 35 kids and it went really, really well. So everyone in class was like, you got to take that to the local comedy club and uh, do an amateur night. So the following week I called in and I was on like a Monday night on like an amateur night at this comedy club. And about 50 or 60 people from school came to see me. Now there was about 120 people in the audience, half of which was there to see me. And so how I did old were you? 17. So I wasn't old enough to drink, but I uh, like there was a, a female comic on the show and I kind of flirted with her and I convinced her to buy me a, uh, a screwdriver. Like that's the kind of drink you drink, you know, because I, you know, you try and sneak those when you'd go to bar mitzvahs and stuff. So I was like, can I, can you buy me a screwdriver? So this like 25 year old female comic bought me a screwdriver. So my nerves weren't so bad. And then 
Um, I, uh, so I did my first show and I did really, really well. I wasn't even taking into account that half the audience were people I knew from school. I just thought I was the king of comedy all of a sudden, right? <laughs> so the following week, like the whole next week at school, I was pretty damned arrogant about it. Like I thought I was going to be on network television within a year. And I, you know, everyone was coming up to me in the halls and congratulating me. So that second week, I was like, okay, I'm not going to bring out, uh, I'm not going to announce it to, to everyone this time. I'm just going to bring the girl I like at school. Like there's the like, girl you have a crush on, you know? Mm -hmm. So I invited that girl and I went down with her to the club. I didn't, you know, it wasn't packed with people I knew this time. And without the support of like half the audience, within a minute, I, uh, it was stunned silence. I wasn't getting any laughs with the same material that killed a week earlier. Oh. And the audience is like, you suck, and they're, you know, it's terrible. And I was even allowed to do five minutes, but I got off in three minutes. That's how badly it was going, right? Oh, oh no. And I think at one point, like, someone was heckling me in the crowd, and I think my comeback was like, you think you could do better? Or some, like, you know, it's just a mess. Yeah. And then the, uh, uh, to add insult to injury, I um, still had to drive home with the girl from school that I had the crush on. We had to, like, drive home oh, together. No. Oh, that's awful. In stunned silence. <laughs> See, I bet the car the was quiet. Silence the audience, you know? <laughs> so we're just like staring straight ahead and not like talking to each other and it's all uncomfortable. And then I'm, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to bring the girl I like. I'm not going to tell everyone in school to come see me. I'm just going to continue doing it. And some weeks will be good and some weeks weren't. But I got good at it. And then, uh, you know, I started getting paid to do stand-up. Okay, so I continued doing it, and um, and I, you know, still while I was like in the while I was still in high school, I was already being paid to like do my first stand-up shows. I remember my first time ever getting paid to do stand-up. I was about eighteen years old, and uh, it was a one-nighter where the comedians had they had three comedians do ten minutes each for a half hour. Like so, it was ten minutes, three guys at this nightclub by the airport in Toronto. And um, so you get $100 for 10 minutes and all the drinks you wanted. And when you're not legally allowed to drink, that's when you want to drink the most, right? right? So like, yeah, I get $100 for 10 minutes. I had like seven drinks and there's like a super pretty girl who's like, uh, I, you know, it's by the airport. So everyone's from out of town, you know, and they're all at this nightclub. So she's, uh, she, I'm drinking with this 25 year old girl and we're making out at the back of the room and stuff. And then my parents had to come and get me at the end. Cause I, I, uh, you know, like my parents come in the, the car and I get in the back seat and I'm like pretending I'm sober and stuff. <laughs> and so the, the night didn't end like super rock star ish, you know, like, cause I still had to go to school the next morning. Right. High school. Yeah. Still in high school at the time. But, uh, that was like the first time I ever got paid doing stand-up. But then after that, while I was in college, which I majored in radio and television broadcasting, on the weekends, I'd get flown to different cities and like I'd leave on like a Friday morning or sometimes a Thursday and I'd uh, play a club for the weekend and then by Monday I'd be back in school. So I did that and by the time I got out of broadcasting school, first I got interviewed to do like a variety of different kind of like on-air weatherman kind of jobs because I, you know, I majored in broadcast journalism and I really didn't want to work in broadcast journalism. And then um, my first like national offer was a half hour special 
Well, I was still in my early 20s. The CBC, which is the, I guess, the Cana- Canadian network, they offered me my own primetime half hour special. They were giving, they were doing 13 half hours with a different comedian in a week and they offered me one. So yeah, my first professional experience was national television prime time in front of the studio audience. And then we filmed sketches on another day and I got to kind of like co-direct the sketches, choose the other actors in them and write them. So you're like, well, this is probably how my entire career is going to go where I just get network specials and you know, you go from nothing to prime time and you're starring in your own show. So I guess that's how that's how the rest of the career is going to go every single time. <laughs> I take it it didn't go that way, huh? Oh, it never does. But then, no. uh, you know, you know, there was a series of um, lesser show business jobs after that on cable channels and things. But I was still lucky to get work, you know, and I was headlining comedy clubs and tr- still trying to figure out my way. And then... Um, and then the uh, the producer of my uh, half hour special called me and said, we really liked your writing. Would you like to come write the Gemini Awards? And the Geminis are the Emmys in Canada. Oh. So the great thing about writing an award show is everyone in the industry that's nominated for an award, like major producers and stuff, they're all in the audience. So they're seeing your work live. That's so after the show, you're like dancing with some actress at the after party and you're in a tuxedo and it's all fun. And, and then... Um, Producers are like, hey, we heard you write, wrote the show. That was really good work. Here's my card. Come right on our show. And then so I would divide my year between writing the Geminis again because I ended up doing it for three years. And then I had a second TV special in that time as well and a bunch of the writing jobs that came from the Geminis. So that's basically what uh, that's basically what happened. So which do you like more, the behind the scenes writing or performing on stage? I would prefer the performing on stage 100% of the time. Really? Yes, absolutely. I like it so much better than writing. Because, you know, they say the fear of public speaking is uh, greater than death. So most of us do not not understand how you could, uh, you know, want to perform more than be behind the scenes. Oh, my biggest fear is that I'll never be allowed to public speak again. That would be way worse than... uh, then uh, I have no fear of public speaking at all. Not being able to public speak would scare me. What, do you have tips? How do you, how do you get that to that spot? Is that just like a genetic thing? You're, you've just got this natural born talent or did you develop that? I think, uh, let's see, I was, in, I was in my camp plays when I was a kid, but the, I think the, the first time I ever spoke as me in front of a large group of people was when in the sixth grade I was running for student council president and it was down to me and this other guy and a young lady. And uh, uh, my speech was terrible. I was all shaky and nervous. But then there was the part where the, um, all the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders could ask us any question we wanted. And some kids said, I heard that there, we used to have Valentine's dances and Halloween dances and stuff, right? Uh-huh. The kid was like, I heard that the grade fours and fives are no longer going to be allowed at the dances and it will just be for grade sixes from now on. What do you have to say about that? So I said, you know, I don't think that would be fair to the grade fours and fives. So if I'm president, the dances will remain grade fours, fives, and sixes. And the thunderous ovation I got from that response was uh, just insane, right? I don't know that I've gotten a bigger applause since that day, right? <laughs> and uh, I won. Like the, l- later that day, they had the um, the uh, the election, and then I won. 
so that's when I realized, you know, that you uh, you got to be able to please the people. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say maybe it was your name, but after hearing what you know, you approved the dances. That's probably it. <laughs> no, that was the moment. That was the turning moment because I remember listening to the speeches and one idiot, like I was against like a couple other people, and one of them was like making promises that were unkeepable. You know, because he was like. Um, you know how there's hot dog day on Tuesdays once a month or something. It's like from now on, there'll be pizza day and there'll be French fries day. And I remember thinking, there's no chance you're going to be able to fulfill that. <laughs> yeah, but fourth graders are not thinking about that, are they? I know, but he did really well. Like his speech went well. He wasn't shaky. And then the girl was not shaky either. And I was trembling. I was holding a piece of paper, reading it, and I was all trembly. And it wasn't my imagination. I was actually really, really scared. And then, but then when it was the when it was time to add the Q and A part, uh, that's when with the with the, uh, the with the dances. That's when I knew I won the election. Because you heard all this applause. Yeah, when I heard the applause, I was like, okay, I won this. Like, uh, <laughs> or 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 uh, well, I didn't know that I won, but I'm like, it doesn't matter anymore that my prepared speech was terrible because. Because uh, I nailed the Q and A. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's great. oh, by the way, I have never told that story um, on 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 in, to, in an interview in my life. That story has never been told. Are you okay with this going on a podcast? Oh wait a minute! Isn't this going to be edited? <laughs> Oh, that's I meant to tell you that at the beginning. But the beauty of technology, I can edit out anything you want. I'm not right, a gotcha well, journalist. I'm just here to have a good conversation. Please edit out anything that doesn't make me sound like like a super intelligent author type. That's you know. Hmm. Um, so in other <laughs> words, I leave in. No, I'm kidding. I'm yeah, kidding. No, wait, I was gonna. Hey, wait. <laughs> I was gonna say that and sound self-deprecating, <laughs> and now instead I sound like someone who just got burned. It's like that's the complete opposite of being self-deprecating. <laughs> oh, I you know I think I knew that's where you were going. I was just beating you to the punch. <laughs> but uh, no, I I prefer. I prefer the um, doing stand-up or anything live or performance to writing any day of the week. The problem with writing for me is um, because most of the projects that you write are uh, involve hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in budget, um, a lot of people have a say in what you wrote. and. It's a very collaborative uh, medium, like TV and film, and I still like it, and I especially like it if you work with people where you kind of respect their, their vision in it, or you have a similar vision, but occasionally you'll come across um, something that you wrote that you genuinely like, and, um, and someone you're collaborating with or a producer will just take it and well, you know, maybe their director's not on board or maybe, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong with the written word when it becomes a piece of mass entertainment. That's kind of why I wrote the book is because I've had stuff produced that I wasn't as big a fan of. And uh, either stand up or writing a novel is the only way to, to get uh, to, to for people to be able to read or see what you actually intended because they're um, like they don't require millions of dollars of investment. Stand up, you're able to just get on stage and convey what you think is funny. And with writing a book, all that, that's another case where it doesn't involve hundreds of people to collaborate. So you can, you can actually get out what you wanted. But 
but writing a book, you do have an editor, don't you, that looks it over? And I had my manager that I was represented by at the time read it and give some notes. And I had a couple of different people whose work I respected read it and give me some notes. But I didn't have an editor in the traditional sense. Like, that's why I, that, I wanted so much for this book to be exactly like I intended that I avoided sending it to major publishing companies. Interesting. So I was actually, that's a great segue. Let's talk about your book. It's The Other Oprahs, and it's about four women who have the name Oprah, but they're not yes. Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> yes. Because I, uh, I'd been thinking about it, and I was like, the hardest thing you could possibly be is probably named Oprah if you're not that Oprah. Because no matter how good you are at something, she's, everyone's going to think of Oprah Winfrey when you say your name. So and it could picture be like, her. And, it, you know, you, you, it, that person that you're talking to, you would constantly be thinking of Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> yes. And they, they could be like, hey, did you see how I just saved that kid from that burning building? And they're like, what's your name? Oprah Jones? And I'm like, oh yeah, Oprah, you saved a kid from a burning building, but Oprah built a school in Africa for hundreds and thousands of kids. Right. You're a failure. Yeah. So no matter how good you are at your, your, the thing, you're just, she's, she's the most famous woman in the world. She's also got the most unique name. So it's, it's like super unfortunate for someone to have the same name as her because you just can't live up to it. Yeah. And I noticed one of the Oprahs actually did have a stage name. Oprah Star. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, you read the, um, you read samples from the website. Yes. I, ha I haven't had a chance to get the book in its entirety, but I saw the sample on your website. Yeah, Oprah uh, Star, and I like that name. And I, uh, I, I immediately liked the fact that it was a, a stage name. She picked that name. Uh, oh, no, but she didn't pick Oprah. Oprah yes. is her real name. She picked Star as the fake name, uh, thinking that that would uh, help her with her modeling slash acting career. Right, right. And that's, that's something that's uh, not uncommon for people who want to be an actor. Yes. Uh, the thing about um, uh, each Oprah is they all have a unique relationship to their name. I didn't want four people just to be like, to, to all have the same uh, problem with it. Mm -hmm. Oprah Star views her first name as a gimmick or a hook. Um, Oprah Fanning is just a big admirer of all things Oprah. So she's super happy that she's got the same name as her favorite star. Um, Oprah, Oprah, G. Oprah G, Oprah Goldstein, kind of uses her name as an excuse why she doesn't try things. And uh, Oprah W, whose name is actually Oprah Winston, so it's really close to Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Oprah yes. Winston is very successful in her chosen career and kind of thinks that Oprah Winfrey and her are in a competition. Uh, and in a delusional way, she kind of thinks maybe even Oprah Winfrey's heard of her and that they're in a kind of a competition together. So... She's a little delusional in her own level of success. I think they're all interesting. I like the one that shares the exact same initials with Oprah Winfrey because she does, you can see the sense of power in her, self-proclaimed. Oh, yes, yes. She's very proud of, uh, of what she's done. And uh, there, there's a line in, chapter, in her second chapter where she says, she's no better than me. She just got there first. So that's her, that's her take on it. 
Yes, and, and in the first chapter, there's the guy that's uh, saying something about how, oh, you're just on cable TV. That's if her channel wasn't as important, <laughs> which of course yeah, is exactly. not. Yeah, exactly. She even has a career in, in, in television. She has like a, a, a real estate kind of show, like a local. She's got a, she's very, she's very good at what she does locally. Right. It's She's like an Oprah in a, in a, a, a macro level or micro yes. level. Yes. And the four of them meet every week in a chat room. Uh, and uh, talk about how to better each other's lives. So, I mean, the name Oprah is obviously a, a really good launching off point for the book. But yeah. if that by chapter five or so, if you're still invested, if you're not invested in their individual stories by then, then something's gone wrong because you can't. The book isn't just about them being named Oprah. It's, I mean, it's it, you know, it's kind of a way of showing that we all have things in our lives that we decide our limitations, whether they're real or imagined, and how we choose to deal with or get over those limitations. So it doesn't have to be the name Oprah, it could have been anything, but it seemed like a really good launching off point. Exactly. And um, I think actually the fact that it is the name Oprah is, is really good because it is such a unique name. And I actually have this belief, I, some people think it's kind of corny, that your name does have an impact on your life. It absolutely does. I mean, if my name wasn't Michael, I uh, obviously at an early age, I, I don't think I'm naturally extroverted. I think because when I'm not out socially or performing, I kind of forget sometimes, especially if I'm writing something, I forget the extroverted me. And then when I go out that, you know, it just comes to me again. But I don't know that that was natural or if it was learned. And I don't know if it didn't start as a result of having a name that was very unoriginal and wanting to find something more unique about myself. But Good for you. Speaking of writing, Michael, I wanted to ask you this. Um, so many people would have a dream to write a novel. How did you just decide to take that leap? Well, it was something I always wanted to do. And like I had said before, people I admired had done it. Like Steve Martin had written Shop Girl. And uh, so that was a book by a man where the protagonist was, uh, was female. And uh, I always liked James L. Brooks. I thought I, I really liked As Good As It Gets. And so I've liked his work. And he does a lot of stuff where the lead characters are women as well. So I thought to myself, uh, I wanted to write a book. Uh, and I also didn't want to continue writing movies only because movies and TV shows are hard to get funding for. And when you do, like I said before, there is a lot of room for them to go awry. So even if you finally get the budget, you can then watch whatever it was that you created go badly. So I wanted to write a book, but um, it just required so much discipline. And I just did not want I didn't want to physically sit there and write the book. I just wanted to go on dates and have fun and do my stand up. Yeah. But I knew at a certain point in my life, if I didn't like take a giant leap forward that, uh, and do something bigger that you're always just going to end up in the same place that you're already in. And I was, I, I enjoyed where I was, but I wanted to see how much further I could go. So I was working with Greg, the, the first time the book idea came to me, I was performing with Greg Barron, who wrote the book, He's Just Not That Into You, and yeah. that has become a pop culture phenomenon. And we were performing at the, uh, the Improv Comedy Club in, in Irvine, and uh, it was very uh, crowded. It was, very, it was pretty much sold out every show, and he was headlining the shows. And I, at that point, I was headlining shows also, but not at that level of comedy club. And, and he had just made that leap 
into the into a, a bigger level where he's playing those clubs and also playing theaters. So I asked him why that, how that managed to happen. And he said, well, he had been on Oprah twice and that had changed, uh, that had changed his career, having been on Oprah and having her say how important it was that people read the book. So her endorsement changed everything for him. So that's when it first, that's when I started thinking about the cultural impact of Oprah. That was the, that was the light bulb moment. And then I was like, I could just turn this into a stand-up bit and get a laugh for 30 seconds, or I could turn this into a bigger product. And um, if, it, if I wrote a movie, it felt like the kind of book that could eventually be a movie, but first someone would actually have to write the book. So yeah. that's what made me write the book. And at the time I was, you know, doing my usual stuff, going on dates, sometimes with people you were interested in. And sometimes you just do it, you know, just for fun. Cause it's fun to meet a girl and go on a date. But then I was like, rather than do, do that and keep repeating the same patterns of, you know, I get into these one year relationships, you break up and then everyone feels sad. Maybe you get back together for a little while. Then you meet someone else. You go out with her for three months and you just, continue the same cycle. So rather than doing that, and also I felt like I'd wasted a lot of, not wasted, but I'd spent a lot of time rather than focusing on my career, doing all of this serial dating. So yeah, I thought- there's a lot of energy that goes into a new relationship. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's a lot of energy and it's a lot of fun. And sometimes people come up to me after my stand-up shows, I'm not gonna name any names, but they'll say, hey, you're really good and I saw you on this TV show, but how come you're not as famous as so-and-so? They name some big star, right? Why, you're funnier than that guy, why aren't you as big as him, you know? And then I, uh, my answer is usually, well, I don't say it to them, but the, the real reason, if I'm gonna be really honest is, because uh, those people probably spent all day every day trying to get to where they wanted to go. And while they were doing that, I was probably on the phone with some girl going, no, I didn't say that. No, no, no. I'm not. No, I didn't say that. No, you said that. <laughs> so I, I devoted a lot of time to uh, uh, to, yeah, the short term gratification of these of these relationships or and they're easier than uh, succeeding in show business. So then I would, you know, I'd have some show business success and then I'd go off and date someone and wow, this is so much fun and I'm already getting that emotional uh, high that you would get from achieving things in your career, you know? Yeah. And then, and then all those would all have beginnings, middles and endings, you know? And maybe even you'd, maybe you'd even attempt to get into fights so you could feel something again, you know? You get into a fight, you make up, and then you have that same emotional hit by making up that you had at the beginning of the relationship, right? right. So after a bunch of those, I was like, I could um, look at the time I spent doing that as a waste, or I can take all this knowledge that I've accumulated about women and uh, all the observations I've made during all that dating and give them to my characters. So, so I was that's what I was going to ask you is how how difficult was it write to write from the perspective of women? Uh, if it had been one woman, it would have been relatively easy, I think, because you just take one. Uh, right. Well, I didn't actually approach them as women. What I tried to do was approach them as people, just human beings yes. with uh, universal problems. And because it would have been if I, you know, if I spent all day going, damn it, I got to write for these four women and I'm not a woman and I don't know what to do, then you're creating a bigger problem. So I tried to explore the universal wants and needs that we all have or insecurities or fears and, and, and use those thematically rather than 
getting too far in the nuances of or the subtleties of each individual woman, but I still wanted to write, obviously each of them had to have a completely unique voice. Right. And I, um, you know, I spent years writing on TV shows that I wasn't the target audience. I've written for a 15, 16 episodes of teen sitcoms for Disney and Nickelodeon. And you just kind of re- try and remember a time in your life when you were that age and first kisses and things like that and crushes. So, uh, yeah, regardless of whether you're writing for a child or for Santa Claus or a, a killer, you just have to like look inside yourself and try and find a channel that that thing that would feel that way about something. It's, a, it's just about putting yourself in other people's shoes. But um, so I, I created four unique women, all with the same first name all of whom speak in first person in the book. That part was a little tough. But then, you know, once I finished, I went through the book again and again, and I'd be like, Oprah W would never say that, or Oprah F would say this, or this line seems like it should go to Oprah S at the time, but it really belongs to Oprah G. So you'd make changes as you went. When something didn't seem like it could possibly come from that person, I would just change it. Is there one of the Oprahs that you connect with more? Let me see here. Because I, I just noticed Oprah G had, uh, it seems like, in the first chapter at least, this angst in the relationship. Maybe that doesn't... Oprah G to me seems like the easiest to relate to for most people, mm-hmm. especially for women. Mm-hmm. Um, she seems like she seems like a lot of women I know. People she, she frustrates me the most of all the Oprahs because... She seems the least honest with herself. It seems like Oprah F knows exactly who she is and Oprah W knows who she is and Oprah S is very defined. But Oprah G seems to be the most, the the furthest away from who she wants to be. Uh, She still hung up on a guy from a year earlier, but every time she thinks about him or wants to have uh, contact with him, oh yeah, you don't know this uh, stuff because you haven't read the book, but yeah, so I won't get too far in it, but it just seems to me the person she wants to be and the person she is are most opposed. Interesting. Well, you know, I'm in a book reading club, so I'm definitely going to recommend this book to them. You know, there are certain things that I say now to people that I've never said in my life. Like, how many people are in that book club was never a sentence. <laughs> was never interesting to me. When people say they're in a book club, I, you know, maybe my... Uh, my thoughts would wander or something. But now the minute I hear book club, I'm like, okay, how many people in that club? Like <laughs> I'm all super interested now and I'm always hoping the answer is 60. I'm sorry. It's more like 15. <laughs> that's still good. It's a start. Yeah. That's not bad at all. But one person said 60 and that was like the happiest day ever. Oh, but, I bet. Uh, uh, you hit the lottery here. Yeah. That's awesome. And the other thing, yeah, it's weird how, you know, I used to, yeah. Now when I meet women, uh, I, uh, you know, I used to, you know, I'm attracted to this woman. I hope I get her phone number. It'd be sure fun to take her out. But now I just see all human beings as all I can see is 1495 when I look at people. So I look at people and I just see 1495. Somebody who and, might buy your book. Yeah. And then when uh, they buy it, then I see them. Hey, I have had a great time talking with you, Michael, and uh, I, I loved the, the first part of your book and looking forward to reading the rest of it and recommending it to my book club and my readers. Oh, that would be so great. And uh, yeah, uh, people should order it from theotheroprahs.com and they can watch my most recent TV appearance on there in the video section. And, you know, I manage the uh, sales. I still, like, I go to the emails every day. I see who's bought it. 
and I personally sign each one. Sometimes like a vertically integrated company here. You, you're doing it all. I thought to myself, I, I, I thought, you know what, I'll hire a, uh, a kid to like send my books out every day. And some days I wish I did because some days there's a lot of sales, but uh, I sign each one myself and I go to the post office every single day. And um, it must be annoying for the other people at the post office, like other customers, because I now have a relationship with everyone at my local post office. <laughs> Too bad they're not on Twitter, huh? Oh, yeah. I, I really hope they start, uh, they add me soon. That I'm sure awesome. they will. <laughs> All right, well. Michael, it's been great talking with you. An absolute pleasure. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks to Michael Gelbart, comedian and author, for talking to me today about his book, The Other Oprahs. You can learn more about Michael on the Namely Marley site at namelymarley.com. That's it for today's podcast. This is Marley, and I thank you for joining me here today. Stay tuned for more fresh and fun name interviews in the future.